0: Welcome to the Data Democracy, presented by renowned O'Reilly author, Ullson Ben-Yus,
1: and powered by Xenia.
0: Make your data accessible and discoverable by anyone, anywhere, at any time. Hi, everybody. You're listening to the Data Democracy podcast, and I am your host, Ole Olesen-Begnot, chief evangelist, engineer, and the author of the Enterprise Data Catalog published by O'Reilly. In this podcast, we explore what an enterprise data democracy is with knowledgeable guests. Today's guest is Joe Rice. Joe Rice is the best-selling co-author of Fundamentals of Data Engineering and a worldwide known voice in the data space. I had prepared a bunch of questions for Joe, but he got me derailed in so many ways, the conversation turned out to be surprising, full of laughter, and just very fun. I still managed to ask my questions though, about his old book, his new book, on data modeling, AI skepticisms, and what the C-level thinks of it. So here are my takeaways. A data leader takeaway. It's still early days for AI. You might want to benefit from it, But excitement is often fostered by vendor BS. So be very careful what you think it can provide you. And second, a data democracy takeaway. Claim your voice. Joe pointed out that not many people in the data space speak up even though they are qualified to do so. So just claim your voice. And third, a personal takeaway. Joe got me pragmatically derailed. And we should all do that. From time to time to people, we want to push a bit more to make them share perspectives. Okay, enough of me talking. Let's hear what Joe has to say. Hi, Joe. Hey, what's up? Happy to have you on. Um, for the for the listeners, uh, can you share a little bit about your background and what you've done in your career? Um, yeah, my background, I've...
1: Worked in data in some capacity or other um, since I started my career, I guess, right? And that was over 20 years ago. But I've worked in a variety of um, fields in data, I suppose, right? So everything from, I guess, whatever you would call data science, before it was data science, to data science when it was data science, to ML, to data architecture, data engineering, software engineering, uh, probably a bunch of other stuff I forgot about, Um, but yeah. (laughs) Now I spend my time uh, mainly as an author and an educator, I, I would, to put it very uh, succinctly. I um, you know, wrote a book with uh, Matt Housley, my business partner. We wrote that back. I think it launched yeah. last year, right? We can get more into that in a bit. But yeah, so I write, <laughs> do courses, you know, travel the world giving talks. That's what I've been doing for the last almost year and a half. Um, yeah, a bunch of stuff
0: we can get into, but I do, yeah. uh, do a fair number of things. I think it it doesn't make that much sense to 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 ask you in depth about uh, who you are Joe I guess you are a very very known person in the in the in the global uh, data community and um and and you've earned that uh, I think quite justly I mean no, thank it's you. very it's very fair it's a high honor uh, coming
1: from you though I mean you, you know you, you're a, one, of the, one of the shrewdest people I, I know in the industry so it's, it's a, Oh thank it's you It's high praise yeah
0: thanks Thank you, Joe. Well, this is uh, very. Anyway, we can uh, we can scratch each other's backs uh, for half an hour, but it's oh, ego uh, stroke the entire time. It's fine. Yeah, let's, that's whole, uh, only, <laughs> let's let's only let only do that. Let's no, you're awesome, Ole. Please. Yeah, uh, but, you, but Joe, you you are just the best. I, I really really admire you. Okay, okay. So so getting a little serious here. So so I mean, I think it's fair to say, uh, scratching your back a little more that that. Fundamentals of Data Engineering really took the data community by storm. It's been a bestseller ever since it came out, and I guess it still is, or really, really selling well, if not a bestseller. Um, yeah. So, 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 what, what made you want to uh, to write uh, Fundamentals of Data Engineering? What, why did you want to write that book?
1: I mean, it was it was during COVID, right? So Matt and I we needed a COVID project. Uh, we're running our business, um, Ternary Data. Um, and I think the things that we'd noticed, you know, and this is something I still harp about probably more than ever, actually, I we feel like there's definitely an education gap in data engineering, for example, like a lot of people were becoming data engineers and not really understanding what that meant. I think we had our own ideas of what that meant, but there were, you know, many definitions of data engineering. I think a lot of practitioners, but not really, um, you know, a first principles, consolidated body of knowledge that would really help aspiring or, you know, or or I guess current data engineers really learn the craft, um, you know, understand the craft, know where they stand in the craft and so forth. And so I think that was really the motivation. I mean, there were definitely lots of tutorials about data engineering, lots of blogs about data engineering and, and probably a few books, but a lot of these are focused on technologies, right? So it's like data engineering for Spark or data engineering for Python or on AWS or whatever, nothing wrong with that. But I, I think what was missing was really, the broader picture, you know, again, from first principles of building blocks upon which you can think about data engineering in a way that's not going to go stale in hopefully five to 10 years. And, and that was our, you know, I think intention with the book. And, you know, I think the fact that it caught the world by storm, you know, surprised us as well. But um, again, I think can have more into what that, those indicators are. I think it's actually a pretty interesting uh, analysis in itself, but, you know, we're definitely humbled and honored that that happened, um, you know, but in a lot of ways this book probably shouldn't have happened Our publisher Why? and our, well our man when we first pitched it you know to our editor at the time Jess Jess haberman at o'reilly to she told us that this is probably a really bad idea for us to do this book <laughs> um, so i don't think she was wrong um, but you know it was i mean because you got two first-time authors who are running a business who are trying to define a, a field from from a, First principles from a foundational level and she's like, this is a it's a pretty risky move. But we're like, I don't know, I think it's the one we want to do and thankfully she took a gamble on us and um you know, I guess it took care of itself. But you know, it almost you know, I guess I don't know what would have happened if we hadn't uh Riley, but you know, but we're definitely glad she took a shot on us and here we are. So
0: Yeah, yeah, Jess also onboarded me and I i remember her <laughs> style as being a little a little cash. Uh but, yeah, but she's a very very nice person. That it, right? Very uh, nice. Yeah, yeah. And
1: she's—I think she's looking out for the, for the interests of the authors too, because she's not going to, you know, sign a project she doesn't feel is going to be successful, right? So the fact—I mm. think she's she can be tough, but I think that's that's definitely—I um, think it's a it's a good thing in a way, because I mean, when you're writing yeah, yeah. a book, as you know, you got to know what you're getting yourself into, and this is not something. I mean, there's a lot of people that say they want to write books. I would say that most people shouldn't write books. Yeah, I, um, agreed. This I agree. isn't. Yeah, you know what's up. So.
0: Yeah, they there's a very little. Uh, there's it's, it's a very different experience than what you think it it actually is right. Yeah, getting the book accepted, writing the book, and then afterwards once it's published, right? It's it's such an extreme process once you go through it the first time, and and I guess for you it must have been even more extreme, right? Because like as I see it, being an becoming an author <clears throat> is something where you close yourself into this like. Cave, and you just write and write and write, and you have to isolate yourself to do that. And then once the book is published, you're supposed to do the exact opposite, right? You're supposed to go out in the world and talk about your book to a maximum of people, doing being completely extrovert after being introvert, right? That must have been extreme for you. I mean, how many times have you traveled the world? I don't even know. I really don't.
1: I I couldn't tell you, man. It's been a lot. But I think the the thing is, it's I'm kind of those weirdos who's who can be introverted and extroverted at the same time. Like (laughs) I can go hide away, um, which I do often. I call it the Batcave. I posted a picture of on my Instagram yesterday where I'm just hiding out and reading and and writing. And that's what I do. Um, You know, but I I think I'm equally adept at going out and obviously, um, you know, talking to lots of people and, um, you know, so but most I I would say most people aren't built for that. Mm -hmm. Right. You're either one extreme or the other. Um, yep. And I would say that you know the the introverted extreme definitely I think is good for for book writing. Uh, but if if you tend to lean towards that for book promotion, and this is something the audience should know, like your publisher is probably not going to help you, uh, help, you know, market your book. That's that's really on you, unless you're you know, uh, on your time's top and bestseller, and then probably some money behind it. But for the most part, the the responsibility of marketing the book is actually on the author, which I didn't know. I didn't know that mm. at all. But thankfully, you know, my background, you know, is um, yeah, you know, we can talk a little more about this. I used to be a you know club DJ and um, you know promoted you know stuff like that. So I you know my friend told me that I, I approached business and uh, kind of a lot of things as like a club promoter. <laughs> so that was a kind of interesting <laughs> comment, but he used to be a professional uh, MC and rapper, so he also did that right. So he kind of understood the dynamics of um, you know just uh, what that entails. But so what that means is you just have this like really innate sense of hustling. Just getting the word <laughs> yeah. out, right? yeah. Right. So to draw draw attention, and so you know you don't do it. In a, you know you have to do it in a good way, but it's like you just um, you're sort of sort of wired for, uh, for that kind of thing. I think that yeah. was a, that was a definitely a benefit for you know our, our book but...
0: mm-hmm. 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 It must have been quite uh, quite the experience. Uh, <laughs> I guess it still is. I mean, and 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 uh, and and I also, I mean. Show sure, obviously isn't about me, but but that no, resonates. No, talk about with that though.
1: I'd love to that,
0: know more. That, it, well, it resonates with me. I never, I never uh, like dj or anything like that. But but I did do a PhD once, and I remember uh, this elitist approach to communication uh, in universities, where talking to the press were like considered something that you had to do, and then you had to find a, a funny, a giggly format to communicate with the with with uh, journalists and yeah that are and I, I just I s when I when I wrote my book and I need, I knew I needed to communicate, I really wanted to do something else than that. And and I think mm-hmm. it's super wonderful that like data community is a place where just and this this all happened by coincidence, right? But it's it's a place where a lot of people podcast, a lot of people discuss, go to conferences. It's a very open place and I, I love I really, really love Mm-hmm. Anyway, enough well, about there's me. A, well, there, I mean,
1: yeah. let's talk about that, though, because I'm very yeah. curious. And we could probably reverse the podcast since we're both podcasters. But like, <laughs> you know, what what I'm interested in too is sort of the angles, um, maybe that you took with, with marketing your book. Um, and I think your observation of the, the data community being you know, multifaceted in terms of you know being receptive to different marketing messages is, um, I think, a very astute and, and correct one. Right? If you're simply in academia, uh, publishing research papers. To in a journal which like ten people are going to read, um, yeah. that's a much different exercise. And academia is very much about you know not showing off. Um, yeah, you know, but but academics do it in their own weird way. I mean, there's oh, these, yes. these weird oh, ways yes. they flex, but it's it's a uh, it's a very academic way. And then people wonder why nobody reads their papers. Um, yeah. <laughs> so you know, yeah. like um, you know, I mean, I, I I sort of live in that world. Thank God I'm not full time in it, uh, but you know but but the thing is the the world of i would say promotion has completely changed too like social Mm -hmm. media has been sort of the um you know the the leveling force where if you have good things to say and people want to hear them then they're going to listen to them right and i think that's sort of the reality of it if you have boring or uh, i guess uh pretty crappy things to say then (laughs) you you still would find your tribe that's the weird thing right but uh, how did you how did you go about marketing a book, especially coming from an academic background?
0: Uh, well, one thing I said to myself was that uh, sort of uh, um, I wouldn't want to repeat what I did while I wrote my PhD, and, and meaning that I wouldn't want to I wouldn't want to sit around and wait for the journalists to call me up because I made a press release on the university homepage stuff. <clears throat> I, I wanted to like communicate with the world. I reached out to a lot of people, and luckily. There are serious social media out there, primarily LinkedIn, right? But um, yeah, and where you can where you can reach out to people and talk to them. And people also began discovering me uh, through uh, through LinkedIn. And and I was mm-hmm. uh, I like I took all the extra time I could, um, uh, at night in the weekends uh, to discuss with people, recording podcasts. And then it kind of. I also okay. This is too much about media, but I last thing for, about me then was that I I remember this feeling from the university that it was so difficult to get to get through, like get attention from media, and so so I yeah. really really forced myself to to reach out to a lot of people, and then suddenly I just discovered that like by word of mouth, more and more people got to know my book, and then then it kind of circulated and it got it, it got its own like mechanism completely independently of, of what I wanted to do. And, and I was very, very fortunate to, to get that kind of, position. but yeah, I mean, that's,
1: but that's what you got to do though. I mean, you know, to unpack this a bit, cause I think it, this is maybe useful information for the audience too. The, yeah, um, yeah. Like you have to put yourself out there, right? I mean, nobody's mm-hmm. going to, nobody's going to just gravitate towards whatever you did. I mean, there's,
0: exactly. and it doesn't really
1: matter what the publisher you use. I'm, I'm coming to find out like, you know, the litmus S I uses is who, I look at Amazon rankings, for example. I think that's a pretty mm-hmm. good litmus test of where your book stands in terms of popularity. And there's books that range mm-hmm. from, you know, some of the top books, you know, at least in our vertical, all the way to books that don't sell anything. Right, mm-hmm. with the same publisher, it doesn't matter which publisher. And so a lot of that, I would say, one, it's a quality of the book that has to stand on its own. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, that you can only you can only try and market a, a crappy books for so long that it won't. <laughs> doesn't have longevity yeah. no no right? no of course of course and so and then again it depends of you know you but you have to give it an initial kickstart. Now, you came into my radar uh, on linkedin i was like this guy's smart has some cool things to say your sort of book that's awesome but i think i knew about you before you published your book mm. as well but you know you just i mean but you just you, you're putting yourself out there and that's a good investment of your time um mm. so you know that's what you got to do is so pe- for people out there just know that like what all they said it's absolutely correct where if you're trying to take the um traditional route of oh, everyone will just come to me through the uh press release I put on my university site that like ten people will read. Yeah. Um, you know, your click through rate's gonna be, you know, say it's one you know, ten percent, it's one person that shows up. You know, it's a so so what's the cost benefit you know, ratio of like doing this activity, right? So you gotta have a, a I think a higher meaning for wanting to do this kind of stuff than just uh clicks and book sales. Uh but if you're fortunate enough to have built the audience and the clicks or book sales will come, you know, so that only happens once you put yourself out there, yeah, yeah,
0: or you get lucky. in terms. Well, of course, of course, you can be lucky. But I think one of the things that characterizes your book, your first book, I want to talk about the rumors of your next book also. I want to get a little into yeah. the, the questions I actually prepared. But yeah, no but but But, uh, but I, I... I have I, a very good
1: way of derailing um, Yeah, yeah, any, it's very elegant. Host, so. It's very, <laughs>
0: very elegant, very discreet. But, uh, but anyway, I just wanted to say, in terms of uh, the longevity of a book, um, what I remember from your book and I was very happy when I read that because i I did the exact same thing is <laughs> mm-hmm. to talk about capabilities instead of talking about specific technologies that will yeah. of, of course uh disappear or mutate or like well transform in some way then i um I discuss capabilities and I think that is a way to like. Uh, to make your book last longer. And I can definitely see that in the way my book is behaving. I have yeah, very, very similar. solid sales over time. I mean, I I am not, uh, my book is still getting bought uh, yep. and, and I'm very happy uh, about that.
1: Your book will get bought for a long time because it was written in a way that's meant to be as timeless as you can in this industry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right eventually what you talked about will be stale and same thing with me but of course but you I mean you had a lot of interesting concepts because what's interesting about your book because it intersected with information and library sciences mm. which you don't often see in the data industry it feels like these are almost separate disciplines but in fact they're actually very very similar they're just yeah. you know i'd say in data they're unknown but you took a i think a very different approach um so that's what's uh
0: Thank you. That's. I think every book deserves to be unique. That was the uniqueness of my book. Your, your book was unique in the sense that it was the first body of knowledge that really assembled all the data engineering practices into one big book where you can simply like read this book and become a data engineer. Right? I think that was uh, why it became so popular. But but Joe, we have scratched it our, uh, our, <laughs> our backs enough now. I I want to get into the questions I prepared. I think. Uh, like, can you share a little bit about the books that you are writing currently?
1: Yeah, I mean, the working title is Practical Data Modeling, right? So, and the whole notion of it is, th- there's a couple threads to this, right? First, the world of data modeling hasn't really, in my opinion, evolved since Data Vault, which, I mean, that book first came out, I think, 2000,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? I mean, if anyone wants to tell me, like, the the big ideas, the big ideas that are used in production, by the way, not just some big ideas around blog posts, but mm-hmm. the big idea is, that are out there that evolve the field it's like that's that hasn't happened right well no. that's the first thing so but a lot of things have happened since then machine learning you know you have streaming you have no sequel uh the data became popular that's another thing that didn't happen before right mm-hmm. like when a uh, data vault was out that was still in the dark ages of data in my opinion where that was uh data is still very much an it function now you know it's the notion of data products and Data is very much uh, you know, data, data and AI, all this stuff, right? It's at the forefront. It is what it is, you know. So I mean that's the first thread. And the second one, I feel as as data became more popular, the practice of data modeling has largely been forgotten by by the latest crop of data practitioners, which you can dive into. And so the, the consequences of this manifest themselves in a number of ways. I would say that, you know, in, in some ways, I, I feel like the the types of problems that I see. You know, in my consulting practice, we do data engineering and data architecture consulting at Ternary. See lots of, lots of things happening. You know, I talk to lots of practitioners in my talks and travels and everything else. So I pretty good idea what's going on. And it definitely feels like the, 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 um, the lack of data model knowledge is manifesting itself in a number of ways. It's, it's costly, uh, you know, I would say overly or necessarily costly, um, cloud bills and technology bills uh costly unnecessary um work and effort Hmm. right um often at the expense of not understanding the data that one has or how it translates into um you know greater value for the business um and so you and, and you also have giant amounts of data sprawl because now it's super easy to yeah, great data sets, great queries. And so this, this manifests itself. And just, it, you know, it reminds me of one of those border shows uh, that you see on TV where people just pile crap upon crap in their trailer home and for years. And that's it's very, very much similar to the types of data that we have in a lot of companies right now. And so I think these are all this all the motivations for the book. And really, I think the other motivation that I have for the book is, and I'll get into what it's about in a second. But the other, the no, other no, thing I noticed no. is there's a lot of religious war still in data modeling. Hmm. Right. Yeah, and and why is, is this? Right. right? So you you fight. So you're having these 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 silly petty arguments about a field that is literally dying before your very eyes. When the thing yeah. we need to do is is I, I would say come together as a field, recognize that there is more than one way to do things. There are many ways to do things, and just by recognizing across the data life cycle, the various t- tools, techniques, practices and ways of thinking about data modeling across a life cycle um, and knowing the trade-offs of each approach. Right. I think by understanding this, you, you develop what I call a mixed martial martial art, uh, mixed model arts. Oh, cool. Right. So hmm. M- MMA nerd, um, you, you know, I used to be a, a quasi practitioner, but the whole point is like an MMA, you know, mixed model, uh, mixed martial arts. Like you're not, you know, you're not going to stick to one true style or you know, if you don't want to have an argument about who, you know, if boxing is more effective than wrestling, in an MMA match, you're going to get killed. Yeah. I can yeah. guarantee you this. Um, <laughs> and so this is, in, in the real world, having one true approach, it hmm. leads to, I think, very disastrous consequences. Because again, yeah. the things I mentioned before, you have many more types of systems, many more types of using data than you did before, many more applications of it. So you need to understand all the trade-offs and the techniques and the approaches up and down that data lifecycle and know what to use when. It's as simple as that. So the book attempts to capture I think to revisit the the con- you know, the the whole notion of data modeling, as well as explore the various um, techniques you can use across the life cycle in, in a very unopinionated way. At the end of the day, I'm not gonna tell you what to do. I'm gonna tell you what the trade-offs are. I you know, it's up to you to make your decisions, just just like you would in an MMA match. Like the world's very dynamic. There's no yeah. such thing as saying this technique is gonna work every single time. That's not reality. Mm-hmm. And I feel like data modeling purists tend to approach the world through a very static lens where their approach is the right way i think this is actually ignor ignoring reality so yeah.
0: uh, well put well put i think mm-hmm. that is wonderfully pragmatic um it's the kind of st- it's a kind of approach that i really like to technology and, uh, and architecture and it's it's solely uh, it's sorely missed uh, in many companies right where you have these fanatics uh, that believe in, in 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 one way of doing things and it's just not very functional to have such an approach. Well, it's not but very I- functional.
1: And it, doesn't, and it ignores the fact that data... I mean, it, yeah, I mean, if, okay, so if you're going to... Because I think in, in, in our world,
0: mm-hmm.
1: we, we tend to, you know, a lot of the, the purists tend to look at things through the analytical lens. They like, go, oh, this is analytical data modeling. Mm. Ignoring the fact that data is created upstream, that, yeah. that's how it goes, yeah. right? And actually, your most important place to, to get your model right is when data is created. Mm-hmm. At the source, right, and that's more of what I'm focusing on. As the book is more geared towards software engineers, application developers, and so forth. If you can get your data right there, everything else is fine. But if you don't, I mean, at best, you're you're, you're duct taping and gluing the data to to make it some somehow work. Mm-hmm. Um, but this ignores the fact of root cause, right? But it would, again, the purists will say, "Oh, well." That's fine, but we'll handle it with our specific technique, you know, uh, downstream analytics land. And I'm like, that entirely misses the entire point of what this is about. Data is a continuum.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Modeling happens at every use case of data, by the way. Because, mm. you know, you're making the data useful and believable for a certain applica- you know, use case. It doesn't matter where it is. And again, it's just, the world's changed, I would say, since um, you know, a lot of the big ideas of modeling came out. But they're still relevant. You still need to know about them, but again, there's just it's the the world has just become a very um, much more chaotic and dynamic place than it used to be. That's reality. So, again, to your point, one size ain't going to fit all.
0: That's, yeah. that's it. Well, you derailed the conversation here. I'm good. I at- could, I, I'm could I could perhaps derail. <laughs> yeah. Well, you are. You are. But I could perhaps derail your book a little bit, Joe, because I think yeah. what you're saying is very much something that I. Lived through, and uh, quite honestly, from a professional angle, suffered from in the like 20 years ago when I was uh, when I was in university, like young uh, student in, in university, and I uh, I was like seeing this community called like library world falling completely apart uh, with a lot hmm. of methodologies, a lot of very refined practices and rules and institutions and everything was really neatly organized. And what the web did to to the library world, obviously, was to simply democratize, well, the topic of this podcast, to democratize the access to uh, knowledge and information, data as well. And and what that resulted in was kind of two fractions. You had one fraction, the people standing, uh, say, uh, at the train station, Saying, this is our world. We belong here. This is our rules. This is the house we built. And then there was the train, and certain people went up on the train and said, okay, we're, we don't know where we're going. We have a lot of learnings, methodologies. We know how to structure information, data, knowledge, but we don't know exactly where. I think there's something about web pages, stuff like that. That was like in the year 2000s. Where information architecture emerged as a concept and as a discipline that grew out of library information science, right? That that entire discipline of like organizing the content on the web so that it could be useful for search engines and all that. And you know, when I hear you talk about data modelers and 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 that that view of like we have to do, we have to organize our data in this way, we have to model it precisely like that. In order to make it work, that is for me a reminiscence of what I heard 20 years ago in the library information science field, mm-hmm. where certain people, not all, but certain people, they just denied the reality. They denied that, okay, we're moving towards a completely new technology landscape, and what we learned needs to be recontextualized in order to be interested. Yep. Think that's uh, so. I hope I derated your book a little bit. That maybe no, you should, I should have had a paragraph a about wonderful
1: that. comparison. Actually, I mean, uh, it was a Jessica Talisman turned me onto a book, uh, "The Discipline of Organizing," fantastic yeah. book. Um, and you know, I've been, I've been it, the fun thing about writing books is you get to explore areas of study that you normally wouldn't. And, and you know, I got to say, library sciences and is just one of those areas where I, I, I'm a complete ignoramus, to be frank. It's something that. But when you realize the world inter- the, that world intersects with the quote data world, I would say very very um, nicely, it opens your eyes to things. But mm-hmm. that book also does talk about sort of the progression and the evolution of um, organizing in a library context, mm-hmm. right? So as you point out, I mean, there used to be the Dewey Decimal System, and and there's Library of Congress, and there's those other ways of um, of organizing uh, books. But then books become digital,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and the web happens and then searching it becomes different, for example. And, and I think a really, good, a really good tangential example of this, um, I can't remember what source this comes from, but a college professor wrote, I think it was an article about how uh, he asked his younger students, um, younger college students, uh, you know, um, or I think he showed them a folder structure. Like what a folder is. And the, the, the concept of a folder is completely lost on this third generation because <laughs> yeah, they're yeah. so used to searching for things in a search bar. Like what would be the point of a folder? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Why would you use one? What? If you oh, use Google Drive, you might use a folder because we're old and we like to conveniently put things into their places. But in Google Drive, you can probably just as well get away with not using a folder. I think most of my documents aren't organized in folders unless I need them to be. It's like, why would you do that? of course why There's would you do that
0: and uh, yeah <laughs> yeah exactly and so uh, to, to windows users out there I, I, if you ask what the simple of of save was in old school windows uh, like they they have no idea young kids do not know that that's a floppy disk so so that's just the evolution of that i want to touch a little bit upon um, your pragmatic approach uh, in general i've i've been seeing a lot of posts and a lot of discussions where you um, where you strike me as not an AI skeptic, but just someone that considers the pros and cons. You're not like uh, euphorically cheering everything uh, generative AI. But why is that? You know, that's uh, something I want to know. I'm older. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, but, you know, I mean, I've
1: been in go. this space for a while, right? And I've been in, you know, been around computers since I was a child and was on the internet, you know, before the, the browser came out, right? So, I mean, I've, yeah. I've seen a lot of this. these cycles happen. And so, part of it is definitely being curmudgeonly and jaded. I'll, I'll give you that much. But I think the other part of it is when everybody's talking about something, you know, especially like your kids and their parents who aren't technologists, like what, what people are doing with ChatGPT, you have to take a step back. And, and I think they why they're talking about it and, and what's, what's all the fuss about. You know, it reminds me very much of when the, the web browser came out, actually, you know, and, and definitely the and searching the web, um, you know, mm. and, with search engines and that and then a the whole world is unlocked. And, and I think generative AI is feel, very much like that, where there's I think people get it automatically. You know, I, I mean, I remember at, at my um, kid's sixth grade class, right, with they're getting out of, of school. We did. A, I stayed there for an hour and I just hung out and talked about AI. My favorite talk of the year, by the way, it was so much fun. Mm-hmm. I, I just passed around my phone and it had ChatGPT on it. And I just, we just sort of explored the boundaries of, of uh, ChatGPT. They had a lot of, they had a lot of awe because at first they were like, oh, AI is going to rule the world and take over. And I was like, well, let's let's understand what that means exactly. I have my phone with ChatGPT, which, you know, maybe may AI, maybe it isn't, but we'll say that it is for now. Mm-hmm. And I just want you to explore what the boundaries of this thing can do. Right? Hmm. And I think at the end, it, it was a good dose of, of um, you know, reality for them in a healthy way where they understood just how to, how to use this technology and what, what is it good for, what is it not, right? And so, yeah. so, you know, I've been through a few machine learning hype cycles. I've worked in, you know, um, well, most of them, and uh, yeah, especially in the, the most recent epochs. And so I think a healthy dose of, of I would say, just reality is, is needed. Like, there's definitely utility, and um, I think large language models have a ton of utility. I use them every day. I use them every day more as a conversational agent, just as kind of a rubber duck for Mm -hmm. things. But you also need to understand that, you know, it could be lying to you. So it's dealing with the sort of the friend that you don't quite trust, um, but they're fun to talk to. It's (laughs) like the friend who tells tall tales once in a while. And so, but, you know, so I think that, yeah, you're absolutely right. I'm not a skeptic. I'm not skeptical of most things, actually. I think that, you know, any technology that comes out has utility. And over time it matures to have great utility. I mean, blockchain is is you're finding this with, with certain applications too. You're finding this um with DR headsets. You're finding it with, with everything. Mm. Um, you know, everything has utility. I mean, the world runs on machine learning. That this isn't a new thing, right? It's been going on for, for a long time. The world mm. literally runs on machine learning at this point because it scales what people can't do. And so I think the way I view things is understanding. Not what's going to change, I think that's too hard of a question to answer, but if you can understand what's not going to change as quickly, this provides a better context for, I think, through which to view technologies like generative AI, large language models and so forth. So the things that aren't going to change or people are not going to want to find results slower, um, you know, in in a less convenient way.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: So large language models provide that. Are the answers correct? I don't know. You tell me, mm. right? That's that's the believability part is the one thing where I think we need to get it right. But there's a lot of work on that right now. I mean, I think the hallucination problem will largely be solved or at least yeah. solved to a degree that's good enough.
0: Yeah, yeah. I also think that. I actually mm-hmm. heard of something very interesting by um, the CEO of a uh, Israeli tech company called VIX. He said uh, that Hallucination was the only thing interesting about large language models <laughs> because it's he called that uh, artificial intuition, and even though mm. that intuition was wrong all the time, that was the only element of surprise, and I that completely twisted my my view on on, on that kind of. But yeah, I, I, it's just a weekend uh, pastime thing. But but I I thought as interesting.
1: I mean, but if you compare it to humans, I mean, god, we we make stuff up all the time. I mean, that's just Exactly. Like, that's, 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 very that's very human. That's very human. That's so very human. Maybe I, maybe artificial
0: yeah. intelligence phones take over the world exactly because they will fuck up just as much as us. Uh, well, I don't know if I must I can say that on there. I
1: don't know. Write <laughs> <can learn> it <laughs> out, but uh, yeah. no, but it, it's it, but it, you are absolutely correct. Um and or um we're hallucinating one of the two, but but it, it the whole point <laughs> is you know, these are, these are new technologies and I think it's going to have a lot of utility, you know, so where I, where I counter that with a dose of realism is when I see people saying, oh, well, these AI models, they'll largely replace the, um, you know, classical statistical models. Right. So, I mean, I heard somebody say, oh, you can, you can just use your large language model instead of using XGBoost. Um, you know, and I was like, that's, Hmm literally not how a large language model is programmed, nor, you know, these are, these are two different things. It's like comparing a cucumber to an apple. It's like, or a cucumber to like beef jerky. They're not literally, they're literally not the same things. Um, and so, so I think there's, when I start seeing hype like that, and, and I think a lot of confusion and, and I would say a lot of like blatant disregard for reality Mm. That's when you start seeing me come out, and I think being quite blunt about these things. Uh, yeah. One, because I just I care enough about the state of the industry to um, want to vocalize uh, when I see nonsense occurring, and there's a lot of nonsense right now in the AI mm. industry. I, yeah. I think that you know I had an article in my subset called AI Carnival Barkers, where <laughs> you know it was in reference to just all the BS that I see in the world. and and in reference to just a lot of the bs i i I hear personally like i was on a panel and somebody was saying yo well obviously we're gonna have uh agi artificial general intelligence by the year 2030 because that's predicted by the singularity and i'm like you have a vested interest in saying this because you're part of the singularity institute right like this is like and i and i think that that's you know so you always got to couple these these claims with um saying well i don't know why 2030 why not 2029 (laughs) yeah why not tomorrow why not 50 years from now right so it's I think there's just a lot of prognostications and there's a lot of opportunity for people to come out of the woodwork and appear to be very smart, you know, about this stuff. I've been doing this stuff for a long time. I'm not saying I'm like the smartest guy in the world, but I do have a very good BS
0: detector. Yeah, exactly. But that's definitely what I sense and and, and what I enjoy about your posts and, oh, you. and about about your writing in general. So oh, thank you. So that's really, really, uh, Good indication of like a, a sound, uh, a sound perspective. Uh, that is definitely something else than than just the regular hype that everyone uh, that not everyone, but that a lot of people gets. Uh, well, there's a lot carried of money into being, right.
1: Well, there's a lot of money being thrown into this field right now. So you're gonna see everyone oh, yeah. coming out of the woodwork, including all the your your, your crypto bros and metaverse yeah. bros from back yeah. you know, a couple years ago. Because yeah, now yeah, this yeah. is like the latest thing you can. You can you know get a lot of money thrown at you for right and um yeah you know. exactly but i think the interesting thing is that what i'm curious to see is after the open ai debacle that happened a few weeks ago like mm. you know what's what's the appetite to you know to, to throw more money into this because i mean that thing kind of um yeah almost completely changed the the ai landscape in about three days
0: oh yes agreed very much agreed then yeah. uh People were, of course, uh, more and more cautious about whether or not they could make big investments in these kind yeah. of initiatives and technologies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, Joe, this was very, very uh, enlightening, uh, fun, very nice to uh, to, you to, know, spread to each You a weird idea of fun, backs. but yeah, okay. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> so. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Data geek fun, at least. Yeah. Uh, but it was very nice of you to take the time. Anytime, man. Take care, Joe. Thank you for being on. Anyway, thank you.